cracks in concrete may be worse than they appear. This week, the CEO of TransEd updated us about the status of the Valley Line LRT. It's not doing great. Plus, the police say they could be doing great if only council would give them just a bit more money. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally. It's the big 200. We have now done 200 episodes of Speaking Municipally. Mac, I don't even know how many years that equates to, but it's a lot. Well, for a weekly show, it's at least 200 weeks and obviously spread over a longer period of time because of uh, summer breaks and other things. But yeah, it's a it's a huge amount of uh, episodes. It's a fun milestone to reach. I mean, all these milestones are to some extent made up, but 200 is a nice round number. And Troy, I don't think I ever thought that we would get to 200 when we started doing this, but I'm glad we're here. Yeah. And of course, 200 is as good of time as any to announce the uh, big upcoming surprise. If you expect it, is it really a surprise? But we will be once again for the fifth year in a row be doing Speaking Municipally Jeopardy. And this year we have confirmed guests, Councillor Michael Jans, Councillor Ashley Salvador, and Councillor Ann Stevenson, who will be competing for the not a prize, but our entertainment at least. I'm totally back into the Jeopardy mood with the Tournament of Champions just having wrapped up and uh, excited to hear from those three. It should be a fun competition. But for now, on to the rapid fire. The ETS Stuffabus campaign has returned for another year, with ETS saying that they're placing a priority on helping those in need, as long as they're not in need of getting where they're going quickly and efficiently on public transportation. A new auction was posted on the Alberta government website Tuesday evening. Up for purchase is 2.8 million eligible votes, with the starting bid posted by Danielle Smith at $2.4 billion. FC Edmonton won't operate in 2023 after a lackluster performance, with the team only winning four of its 28 games this past season. Soccer fans in Edmonton are confused and frustrated, feeling like they're being punished for being soccer fans, noting that the team performed easily four times better than the Toronto Maple Leafs' typical season, and they're still around. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported, and this episode is brought to you by Alberta Blue Cross. And you know that even if you're a busy business owner with more meetings than hours in a day, you are calm and collected when your group benefit plan is taken care of by Alberta Blue Cross. Your employees can manage their own health, dental, life, and disability coverage online, anytime, on any device. It makes it easier for them and for you. You can learn more and explore your options at ab.bluecross.ca. Mac, I think there's no better way to start a 200th episode, something that makes it seem like we've been doing this since time immemorial, than to address the cyclical process of the police coming to city council and saying, please, sir, could I have some more money? There's always something, isn't there? The latest request is for a three-year gang strategy. So Statistics Canada had some information recently about an increase in in crime related to gangs. And of course, uh, the Edmonton police, you know, despite other opportunities saying that crime is down, things are trending in the right direction, and it's all because of their great work, now have come to city council and basically said, gangs are a huge problem, but we can solve it. All we need is another $10.5 million dollars on top of all of the other increases they've already received in the past six months uh, over the next three years. Police say this would help address increased violence and gang activity and would uh, allow for a total of 39 full-time employees to be hired. 
They said that the number of officers related to guns and gangs isn't super clear, but that these gang unit members would work seven days instead of four, and the funding could fill in the gaps that they currently have, because apparently the firearms unit only works four days a week. In my brain, I understand that this isn't a joke. I do. I truly get it. But is this a comedy routine? (laughs) The police has been in under a constant barrage of scrutiny and criticism for increased budgets. Council has gone through massive debates and much to your and my chagrin has increased the police budget depending on how you count on the order of 20 to 50 million dollars in the past term. Why is this still being proposed in budget right after there was an ill-advised approval of the funding formula that was supposed to stop service packages. The police and the commission made it pretty clear that they would not be bringing forward service packages if they got the funding formula, which they got. So the way the police have structured this request is pretty interesting, I think, actually, because as you recall, council only approved the funding formula for one year right? Just so that they could get the ball rolling. They wouldn't have service packages, as you say. They'll come back and revisit that conversation about future years for the funding formula. This $10.5 million request for gang activity starts in 2024, right? <laughs> $8 million in 2024, then $1.5 in 2025, and then a million in 2026. And a spokesperson for the Edmonton Police said that if they get that four-year funding formula, if that funding formula, multi-year funding formula is approved and finalized, then the funds would be found within what is allocated. And if it's not approved, then they would consider, you know, how they might be able to implement this strategy if council didn't agree to give them the more money. So they've used this, you know, position that they're in around the funding formula to their benefit. Again, they're very good at asking for money, evidently, Troy. This $10.5 million for this gang's service, there's been debate about if this is stackable with the other 70 or so increases that are on the books. And specifically, I'm thinking of the Chinatown Safe Streets Operations Center, which will require an increase of around $4.5 million to the Edmonton Police Services budget. And now during the funding formula debate, there was some debate about, well, is this coming from the funding formula? Is this on top of the funding formula? With this new funding request, there's some question about how does the Healthy Street Operations Center fit in? Mac, have we gotten an answer on how that 4.5 million factors into this discussion? Well, remember that's four and a half just for 2023. There'd be subsequent funding for the 2024 year because I think it's a two-year thing that council approved. But from the council's point of view and from the city's point of view, I think it's unclear. I think we've heard the mayor and others make statements to the effect that that money for the Healthy Streets Operations Center should come from the existing allocated tax levy that the police gets. The police commission, unsurprisingly, disagrees. And they told Post Media that the $414 million that they're going to get in tax funding for 2023 does not include that $4.5 million. So they're expecting to get another $4.5 on top of the $414. To confuse this only a little further, there's also two members of city council sitting on the police commission. So there's some hat wearing going on here for sure. Yeah, I think the numbers are can get kind of confusing, right? And and uh, is it 414? Is it 418? Is it 10.5? Like, what are the numbers? I mean, to some extent, the numbers are so large now, the amount that we spend on police that it doesn't even matter. I think the takeaway for me on this story is that people always say death and taxes are the only reliable things you can count on, I I would add to that police asking for more money. Or if you live in Edmonton, 
police getting more money every budget season. But the police aren't the only people getting more money, though others are getting less. And one of the organizations getting slightly less than the 400 plus million that the EPS gets is the Edmonton Edge Fund, which is essentially startup and innovation funding in the state of Edmonton that would provide $5 million in grants to support local companies. This was one of the unfunded service packages that is being brought forward in this budget that council will be discussing in the upcoming weeks. And it's also a follow through on something that the mayor has been talking about, you know, better funding and support for, in particular, tech and innovation companies, but startups more broadly. Uh, so he has written some stuff about this, Mayor Sohi, uh, about how this fund could help champion tech and innovation in Edmonton. It could enhance our competitive edge and appeal to new investors, which in theory, you know, brings new investment and business growth and jobs and things like that to Edmonton. So all of that sounds fine. Uh, the proposal here is that administration starts administering this fund. So the $5 million in grants would be handled by city administration and that they would evolve the program over time, potentially bringing in partners like Edmonton Unlimited, the former Innovate Edmonton, or Edmonton Global. So these organizations that are already tasked with, you know, economic development in in, in slightly different ways. So that's the, the request that council will be considering alongside all of the other unfunded, you know, service packages as part of this budget. And, you know, Troy, from my point of view, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Like putting more money toward uh, businesses is a good thing to do. And I'd rather see the money go directly to businesses in the form of grants than to service providers who employ a lot of staff and run programming and don't always necessarily have that money impact businesses where they actually need it, which is in their bank accounts. On the other hand, there's two things that kind of stand out to me about this as being potentially problematic. Number one, administration, city administration is inherently a risk-averse organization. And if we really want to champion tech and innovation and do a little bit of investment, there's some risk involved. So I'm not sure that administration are the right is the right entity to be managing this fund. The other thing is that $5 million might sound like a lot, but it pales in comparison to what other jurisdictions who are actually serious about this are spending. Calgary's Opportunity Calgary Investment Fund has been investing in, in tech and, and, uh, and startups in Calgary since 2018. It's a $100 million fund. $5 million is nothing. Yeah, this reminds me, you know, it's not tech innovation, but when I was doing basement renovations and looking at the grant opportunity for enhancing the insulation in my basement, these energy efficiency grants, I looked at the amount of paperwork and red tape I'd have to go through to get what equated to around $437, and I just didn't do it. It wasn't worth my time. For a startup whose critical, pivotal first years are about making a minimum viable product and finding that product market fit and beginning their scale up, spending a lot of time doing the bureaucracy of filling out forms for what will likely amount to a pittance. I think back to a previous episode where we talked about the transition funding for businesses struggling with the cost of compostable containers for takeout. And, you know, they could subscribe to this program to get like 700 bucks. I just don't see that as a valuable business opportunity, especially given that this is tech. I know what tech workers make. The amount of time in just salary costs to fill out all those forms, I, 
it's going to be hard for a tech company to break even, I think, on something this small. Or just not many companies get funding is the alternative, right? Like maybe sure. the five million just is divvied up between a handful of companies rather than, you know, a large number of, uh, of businesses. So previous business grants that the city's done coming out of, out of the pandemic with recovery, you know, they're like $5,000 or $2,500 or, you know, really, really small amounts of money, which, you know, help with certain things, but aren't really going to make a material impact. It sounds to me like this edge fund is intended to to make larger contributions, like maybe those grants will be significantly larger for businesses, but you're right. Like, you know, it's an expensive endeavor and uh, depending on how they choose to divvy that up, you may not be able to address and help that many companies. And of course, the other downside, the larger the grant funding, the more the risk averse city administration factors into it because the bigger the grant, the more you really have to make sure you're being due diligent and not wasting that money. Yeah, that's right. In terms of due diligence, we should mention that this isn't just the city's idea or just the mayor's idea. He has convened this thing called the Mayor's Advisory Council on Business Growth and Opportunities. Uh, Last month in October, he named all of the people who are part of that, and many of them were involved in providing input, at least, engagement on this edge fund and have contributed reasons why they think it could be you know, a good thing. You know, some of them talked about just the need for for more funding to help companies get started, which is what you were talking about. But a common thread to me was just this idea that a fund like this could put more money directly into entrepreneurs, right? Who can who can then make things happen. So I got funding from the city of Edmonton can be a bit of a stamp of approval for new startups. But at the end of the day, it's the money that really, you know, can help people take their ideas forward. Yeah, but the money, of course, has to be material. And I think back to Daniel Smith's announcement this Tuesday about the uh, cash going to the pocket of Albertans. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this with Ralph Bucks before. You give $400 or $600 to someone, they're going to buy a new TV. But you give $2.4 billion to a provincial government looking to make change, and they can build housing. They can build, honestly, an entire LRT line. You could build a train for that amount of money. And I find it's a similar thing with something like this startup funding. Depending on the grant size, you know, you could pay some money to some tech companies to extend their startup runway a little bit more. But $4.5 million, that was how much it cost, excluding the traffic signals, to build the entire downtown bike grid. To what extent would Improving city infrastructure, improving the actual build form, improving our viability on the global stage actually help these startup companies much more in terms of attracting talent. It's such a small amount of money that I feel like there are better ways to spend it. I think that's an interesting preview of the conversation we're going to hear at Budget. It's not just this program, of course, but there's going to be all these little unfunded service packages, all these little potential pots of money that council could spend money on. And this is the kind of conversation they need to have. Should we build you know, uh, another 10 kilometers of bike lanes, or should we fund a $5 million grant program for local businesses? And of course, they're going to try to spread it around, you know, spread the love a little bit. And this will be one of the few directly impactful things to businesses. And I, I suspect for that reason, you'll get support in the budget because council wants to be seen to be supporting businesses. Of course, speaking of budget a little bit, I think it's worth to give a bit of a preview of budget. Budget, of course, the public hearing is coming up early next week. That's where the public will get to 
provide their input on the draft budgets before council hunkers down and debates every single service package in order or in random order. And I thought it was very interesting this week that we started to see councillors stepping forward and sort of staking their claim. Councillors Hamilton and Knack, uh, of course, said Lewis Farms Recreation Center or Riot, that is coming at a several hundred million dollar cost. Uh, You also saw councillors like Aaron Paquette and Ashley Salvador and Ann Stevenson talking about the lack of funding for active infrastructure or climate or houselessness and supportive housing. These things that in this status quo budget that we talked about are generally unfunded. I'm seeing at least a few councillors stepping up and saying, no, we need to actually do these things. Not lip service, but actually do them, which is an investment of hundreds of millions of dollars to do supportive housing and to do active transportation and to do transit fixes on a large scale. That's a big investment. I think you and I had both written off this budget a little bit, but perhaps we will be surprised in the upcoming weeks, given where councillors are staking out their policy positions, that maybe there may actually be some big swings coming up in this budget. Well, I mean, one of the good things about a status quo budget or a ho-hum budget or an unimpressive budget, however you want to call it, is that it does provide the opportunity for council then to come and make some motions and, you know, suggest some amendments that make it look like they really did some important work on behalf of their constituents, right? That might be too strategic <laughs> to think that that's <laughs> the reason that administration administration put forward the budget it did, but it is it is one of the potential side effects here is that we could get some really interesting things from councillors over the next few weeks. Yeah, I'm skeptical there was a secret policy directive from council that told administration, hey, make sure you disregard council's approved direction <laughs> so that we can come in and correct it. Yeah, I ho- well, I hope not. One of the other things that didn't happen, shockingly, is on-demand transit was not included in the base budget. So this is one of the things that council will be discussing whether or not they should fund. I just find this fascinating, Troy. So when we did the new bus network rollout, on-demand transit was an important part of that, except that the way that the city went about it is they put it into a separate funding package and for whatever reason was never included in the base budget, which means that it's only been funded for two years. And if we want on-demand transit to continue beyond April 30th next year, council's got to approve new funding for it. Well, of course, Mac, it was a pilot. (laughs) I guess it was a pilot, but I don't think the intention was for it to just stop all of a sudden. I kind of agree with Councillor Andrew Knack, who said, for such a core service to not be built into the base budget feels like something went wrong somewhere. And indeed, um, if we stop providing on-demand transit, which on-demand transit makes it seem like it's extra, but this is the core transit service for a huge swath of the city that just doesn't qualify for frequent big bus transit service. I don't think there's a possibility this doesn't get funded. I think this is uh, almost a guaranteed thing. Like Councillor Andrew Nack said, it's a pretty core service. But I think it was really interesting about this is Mayor Amarjeet Sohi was speaking to reporters and he said that he was expecting a larger than expected dividend from EPCOR, increasing, you know, a bit of revenue since the city of Edmonton is the sole shareholder in EPCOR. And he said, we should put that money towards public transit. That made me stop just for a moment because I don't like the idea that Profits from water bills are what funds public transit. Like, sure, you know, maybe we have extra money in the general bucket because of EPCOR, and maybe we want to spend some money from the general bucket to fund transit, but the two should not be connected. And I I really drew some issue with the connection. I think it's potentially problematic, you're right, that he is drawing the direct line from one to the other. But this is the whole reason that 
you know, the privatization of Epcor happened in the first place, right? And the, so the city of Edmonton could benefit from the dividends that it gets from Epcor as the sole shareholder. So I don't really have a problem with using that money for that. When we get down into the weeds of the budget on all the amendments, there's often discussion about which pot of money things are going to get funded from. Are they, you know, pay as you go? Is it the financial stabilization reserve? Is it grants from other orders of government? Is it dividends or, or uh, investments that the city of Edmonton has and sort of the increase that we get off of that. So there's lots of different pots of money and they'll sort out how that works. So I'm not as concerned about that as you are. I think it's interesting that, you know, he would draw that that really clear connection rather than saying just simply, this is a core service, we have to fund it. Admin- city administration, who we pay to be experts, which is the best pot of money for us to use for this? Yeah. And, you know, one of the pots of money that council is thinking about taking from this week is the Financial Stabilization Reserve, which is the emergency fund, the break glass. The rainy day fund. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That fund. And $7.5 million coming from that for an emergency shelter in West Edmonton. This is after many of our vulnerable Edmontonians have lost limbs or died in the cold or in fires in the cold, which is just a brutal thing to think about on Edmonton streets. While it seems like a very good plan overall, you know, if we need more shelter space to take care of vulnerable Edmontonians, building shelter space, great plan. This is the end point of what we heard a couple weeks ago where council had gone into an in-private meeting and Councillor Sarah Hamilton came out and went and talked to the media and said this was toxic governance, that city council was stepping over their jurisdictional boundaries, and she was very frustrated with this happening on repeat with the current set of councillors. And Councillor Tim Cartmel agreed with her. And it was all around, at least if we're believing Keith Drine's reporting and some of the rumors and speculations that have been circling around, it was about this item and spending the financial stabilization reserve on ostensibly housing and homelessness, which is the provincial responsibility. I think you're right. I think it is very aligned with that previous conversation. Interesting that they didn't speak up, or at least I have not seen that so far. But also, neither of them are on executive committee, which voted unanimously to approve this funding. So it has to go to council still. So maybe we'll hear more from some of those councillors on November 30th when council has to vote on it. But it feels to me, Troy, like this is something that you and I have been advocating for, right? And that we've often said, well, the city has the money to do something about this. Don't play the jurisdiction game. It's not our jurisdiction. If it's a real gap and a real need, why not put your money where your mouth is and do something about it? So I was excited to see executive committee recommend that the city fund this, you know, and and it's fine because then Councillor Knack still got to say that he's frustrated, you know, that the city has to fill the gaps and, you know, that it's frustrating to hear that we have these same problems year after year when really it's a provincial thing. Like you can still do all of the advocacy that needs to happen to try to get other orders of government to bring money to the table. But in the meantime, we can actually have 209 new shelter spaces for this winter, which is a really significant thing. Provincial abdication of the responsibility for housing and homelessness, that's an endless source of frustration for Edmonton City Council. But, you know, as it turns out, they are getting another untapped endless well of frustration, and that's in the Valley Line LRT, which got an update this week from the TransEd CEO saying... Oops, everything bad. Yeah, originally we heard that there was issues with these concrete piers underneath the elevated parts of the valley line, right? It was, you know, 18 piers that were damaged at first. And and then they said, oh, actually, you know, 21 of them have cracks in the concrete. And this latest update says that 30 of the 45 
now have cracks. And it's only a matter of tr- time, Troy, I'm sure, until we hear that all 45, you know, have these deficiencies. I mean, they were all built with the same materials and the same people at the same time. It seems kind of uh, unsurprising that there would be additional peers that have this problem. Maybe TransEd shouldn't have given us a number in the first place because it doesn't really change the fact that we still aren't going to have a train anytime soon. Whether it's 21, 18, or 45, this Valley Line train is not opening when it was supposed to, you know, the fifth time it was delayed. Well, and when this news initially came out about the cracks, many people jumped to, you know, the right obvious conclusion that, you know, a contractor used substandard materials or processes and built a low quality product. And that's why it cracked. The key thing with the update that TransEd released is that they revealed that no, the Piers were well built according to the design and they were properly built with correct materials according to design. The problem was the design was bad and the design did not account for the necessary horizontal forces on a lot of the concrete piers. And what that means is that no matter what, we can't get the product that we initially asked for. We gave a design for piers that had nice little triangles in them. Well, now those triangles are going to be filled in and they're going to have haphazard steel strapping installed on the outside. We're going to see what looks like it should be, you know, a 40-year-old keeping it alive train track system for something that is brand new. If the piers have design issues, where else on the train may have design issues? I think the faith in TransEd as a consortium has hit the absolute floor in this. And that's going to delay opening. That's going to delay everything. I had said before that we're going to see another extra year. I truly do not know when this train line is open because how long until they find the problems with every concrete pier? And how long until there's that discussion? We don't want a substandard sort of looks like it's slapdash together product for a brand new $2 billion train. So does TransEd eventually have to rebuild these piers? What's the astronomical expense on all of that? There's a potential end game here where TransEd fully walks away from the product. TransEd is going to operate this line for 30 years. They're taking a quote-unquote loss on the building of this train line because they're going to make profits and operating it for the next 30 years. But there comes a point where that potential upside for operating starts to outweigh their actual costs for TransEd. When are we going to be left holding the bag? What's going to be in the bag when TransEd may end up walking away? There are way too many questions for this brand new LRT line. And that's so frustrating because even if the contractor is paying, we still don't have a train. We built an entire bus network around this train and we can't use it. And that's impacting our transit service. That's impacting people who purchased houses around the LRT line. And there's just nothing we can do for all of these people who are adversely harmed by these massive delays. Yeah, I thought it was really frustrating. Number one, that every council member, it seemed, felt the need to put out their own statement about (laughs) this. Uh, And number two, that almost every one of those statements, you know, reiterated the fact that this is a fixed priced contract. So additional repairs and delays, you know, don't cost the public anymore. It's like, well, that's great, guys. But what we really want is an operational train. And I think that the situation we find ourselves in was foreseen by some people. There was lots of discussion about whether a P3 was the right way to go for this very important you know, city infrastructure. And we were kind of forced into that in order to get some federal funding. But we are here now, and it's created a situation where 
administration and, and council can basically point the finger at trans ed and say, it's not our fault, it's their fault. So there's a lack of accountability, I think, for Edmontonians on this project. And then the other thing is, as you pointed out, you know, TransEd is now, you know, pointing out that there's some design issues here. So it's a fixed price contract, but isn't a very likely scenario that this ends up in a lawsuit somewhere between the two parties to work out what those damages are actually going to look like, because who actually was at fault here at the end of the day? Meanwhile, you know, all this happens. Meanwhile, we don't have an operational train. I recall a fixed priced contract for the often delayed Walterdale Bridge that ended up in court. And we did not make back as much money on those delays as we were told every day when they were happening. There was a settlement between the company and the city. So there's precedent for this fixed price not being as good a deal for us as perhaps we were sold. Well, Councillor Tim Cartmel, who the media likes to remind us in these stories, is a structural engineer, had some comments on this. And I'm interested to hear, Troy, what you have to say about it. Because on the one hand, I, I thought his take was pretty good, which is that kind of reminding us that somebody's made a mistake here. Somebody probably feels really bad about the mistake that was made. People are all frustrated. And when we're frustrated, you know, we get into this negative spiral. He also said that, you know, like you did, there's this loss of confidence that people have, right? Because we can't count on this project. We can't count on the investments that people have made thinking this thing would be done by now. You know, that not only impacts, you know, those folks who have made these decisions already, but future decisions that might be made as we try to shift people away from vehicles, as we try to develop city plan, all of those kinds of things. It really calls into question, you know, the confidence that Edmontonians have in all of the projects that the city of Edmonton is doing. But he didn't go that extra step that I was hoping for, which is that, you know, he, he didn't really talk about accountability, he, he identified that there's frustration, but it's not clear to me in his comments where he expects things are going to change. No, and, you know, we're still pursuing a P3 with Marigold Infrastructure Partners for Valley Line West to West Edmonton Mall. By all accounts, looks to me like we haven't really learned our lesson. I recall a Metro Line, which, you know, is a different train, a different set of issues. But we had a similar problem with Thales, the signaling contractor, not delivering. And we ended up taking the contract away from Thales and essentially rolling our own solution to the signaling problem. Why isn't that on the table? Why isn't there the discussion? At least I get that there's contract issues, but at least to show that we've learned from past mistakes and that we're considering options on the table. To me, it sounds exactly like what you described. Every counselor is getting in their two cents to say, look at this. There's a punching bag that we can prove this isn't our fault. Let's all score some points by punching on that punching bag. But I don't care if counselors feel good about scoring a point by having it be someone else's fault. I just want a train. Absolutely. You know, the thing that I want so much about a train is that it's going to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. And Mac, do you see what I'm teeing you up for here? <laughs> Beautiful transition as always. This episode is brought to you by the Well Endowed Podcast from the Edmonton Community Foundation. It's hosted and produced by Andrew Paul and Lisa Pruden, and it explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The ECF helps people create endowment funds, and the podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. You can find that wherever you get your podcasts or subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Mac, and that's all for this week. This is going to be the final podcast episode before budget gets really, really real for real this time. Public hearing is coming up, and we're about to jump into the weeds. 
So before we jump off that cliff, Mac, any any last words? I would say to all of our listeners, you know, we're going to be here. We're going to help you understand what's going on with budget. It might sound like a slog, but remember, as Troy said off the top, there's something to look forward to. No, it's not the holidays. It's Jeopardy. Here's the thing. The worse budget season is, the more taxing it is, the more stressful it is. That means the more release those counselors are going to have (laughs) when we record Jeopardy after budget. Depending on how sadistic you are, you can vote for a really taxing and stressful budget season or not. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.